Hello, Valparaiso. This is Allison Shooting and Willa Walsh, and you're listening to Welcome Project Radio. The Welcome Project collects first-person stories and pairs them with facilitated conversation to help participants forge stronger ties within and across communities. We vision a world in which people are curious about and actively seek to engage those who are different from themselves. We are proudly underwritten by Asana Yoga Center and Roots Market Cafe, two excellent ways to feel good during a pandemic. They're located online at asanacenter.com and rootsmarketcafe.com. Theme music is provided by WPLP's very own Paul Schreiner. Thanks, Paul. Today we bring you a couple stories from the Welcome Project's archive, so listen up. Our today is told Totally Safe and the Brown. And we have a special guest with us today in the studio, Dr. Larry Boss, who's a professor of political science at Valparaiso University. He works with Project Neighbors, a familiar face of the Valparaiso Human Relations Council meetings, um, and one of also one of the creators of the Bias Motivated Incidents in Northwest Indiana website, which compiles a list of bias incidents going back to 1990, which is over 30 years of data. Um, and Larry, it's great to have you on the show. Um, I'd love to hear more about the website and, and how it came to be. Good to be here. Good to be here. So, so what, what, okay, so I know that the website, I went on it a little bit, and it's got, there's like decades, I know it goes back to 1990, and there's recent stuff up until today, but like what initiated this initial, like, bringing all of these incidents together? Okay, thank you for the opportunity talking about this. this is one of my favorite stories to talk about basically here. And I'm going to tell a story from the historical perspective because I think it's important to see you know, why we did this and the context in which it was done. And it really sort of starts with, uh, in the mid-90s, myself and Richard Balcom, my colleague at Valparaiso University, we created the Community Research and Service Center, uh, which was designed to create, um, to, to do research and service for government and not-for-profit organizations in Northwest Indiana. And at the same time, to involve students in those projects. We learned real quickly that if we're going to really provide service to the whole community, we needed to we have facilities all around because the university operates on a schedule, but nobody else in the community operates on that particular schedule. So we said we need to have some money, and the university was certainly not going to give us any money. Well, we thought it might, but it didn't. So we went out looking for a grant, and we got a grant from the Department of Housing and Urban Development called a COPSI grant, which stood for Community Outreach Partnership Center grant. And it was a very nice, lucrative grant. We got well over half a million dollars eventually, I think $650,000, which gave us the opportunity to hire staff to, to really meet the com- com- needs, of, needs of the community. But it also took us in a different direction. We had to partner with, we had, had I make it sound bad, but we partnered with uh, most of the organizations that were affiliated with Hilltop Neighborhood. And one of the things we were uh, charged to do with the Hilltop Neighborhood was increase uh, increase their capacity to deal with the, with problems and stuff like that. So one of the things we did, we set up a study circle where we got people from the city, uh, city planner and somebody from the mayor's office, uh, somebody from the school board, somebody from the city council, uh, university administration, and then members of the Hilltop neighborhood community sit down at a study circle. We got Michael Cobbler, essentially, who's a great storyteller, a great facilitator of all kinds of groups, uh, to facilitate this. And they met every couple of weeks, and because we had money, they had lunch, and it was, re- it was all indications are that it was going really, really well in terms of uh, achieving the purposes. 
that's one story. I'll come back to that. Okay, that's that's we got something going good here. On the other hand, there had been a, a series of scattered um, bias incidents. And when I talk about bias incidents, what I'm talking about is behavior which constitutes an expression of hostility against the person or property of another because of the victim's race, religion, disability, sexual orientation, gender, identity, or ethnicity, national origin, etc. Okay. Um, so there have been some scattered ones. The most notorious one was the Union Community Church back in 1997. This was Greg Jones's church where they vandalized it, uh, painted swastikas on it, and then not only did that, but they went to the neighborhood handing out literature about the black folks are, are coming. Are coming. We got to get rid of these these people. Okay. But and that uh, would have been right in the hilltop neighborhood because that. No, well, at that time, uh, Greg Jones's church was basically. Um, you know where J.J. Heating is. Okay. It's right behind Caroline's place. Okay. Uh, that's where it was at that particular point in time. It had been, it had been in Union... Well, that, I'm not quite sure if that was before or after it ended up in the Greek Orthodox okay. church down there, basically like that. So, um, so there had been scattered stuff. But in 1999, okay, there was a series of incidents that became very, very... Uh, public. One first one was a swastika painting uh, uh, on houses in a driveway and a, uh, a car of some individual. The other one was a very, I want to say almost vicious swastika painting of a Jewish family home. And if you listen to the article that when they talk about this, you know, they were at 10 o'clock at night, all of a sudden the windows became dark because some people were outside painting, you know, swastikas and painting all wow. over the whole house. And I knew a lot more about this because my daughter and the woman, uh, the daughter there, uh, were friends, and she had been harassed at school for the same kinds of incidents. So that was the second one, and the third one was, again, racist graffiti, where they, again, uh, painted racist graffiti, uh, swastikas over someone's house. <clears throat> this is all in the same time period? This is or? all the same time between May 1999 and June 24, 1999. Within okay. a month, essentially, these three happened. Uh, members of the community became outraged and convinced the mayor, essentially, to do something about it. He had a meeting, and he, com he created a group called Citizens to Promote Respect, the CPR. Okay, and, you know, the but Mayor Butterfield at this time, his, okay. his um, credit, uh, it was a good idea. But, he, you know, he hauled in the same usual, what I call the usual suspects. They always call in to handle a problem. And, in effect, they did nothing. Okay, and uh, but the incidents uh, continued during that period. For example, there was a burning uh, in February of uh, 2000, then a uh, burning of a, a cross on a gay young man's l um, lawn. Uh, they also left a, a, bo a bomb there. It didn't go off, essentially, ah. basically. So, you know, these kind of things continue to happen, and the, the committee to promote, citizens to promote respect actually did, did nothing. So people began to complain again. People wrote letters to the editor, really critical of the mayor and what had happened, and things like that. And and then three more incidents occurred. We are now basically in 2001. Uh, there was a cross burning on a woman's name, Lisa Alexander. I don't know if some of you know her. She was a former student of mine, basically. They burned a cross on her lawn. Uh, another Hispanic family had a cross burned on their lawn. Again, this is all taking place between March and April of 2001, and uh, there were swastikas painted at a house on the Lake of Four Seasons, 
Okay. Uh, so all around the area. So what happened is Mayor Butterfield called a meeting, and at that meeting, uh, he made a tactical mistake, which was he took uh, 45 minutes to try to, to tell people what they've been doing, and everybody sort of knew that this was not doing anything, basically. So in the middle of the meeting, a man which uh, who no longer lives here, um, uh, Father Ormos, uh, the Episcopal uh, priest at the time, uh, a very large man with a big black beard and a booming voice stood up and he said, when will the people be allowed to speak? <laughs> and of course, this, this uh, fired up everybody. Uh -huh. uh, and people like Sri Isaacson, who used to uh, run the Hilltop Neighborhood House, um, also screamed out things, uh, as she was very good at doing, basically. <laughs> and so this was not typical Valpo stuff, that you had openly hostile kind of stuff. Mm. So what happened is that um, they brought in President Hari. Because what, what was going on here is there was two groups. One group was saying, hey, you know what? This is only the tip of the iceberg of what happens every day in this particular community. You know, these are not juvenile pranks. Okay, and the other side was saying, hey, wait a second. You guys are giving Valparaiso a bad name by talking about things that are nothing more than juvenile pranks. They don't happen very often. Uh, and it's, this is not a big deal. You guys, you guys yeah. are always making a big deal out of these kinds of, of things, something we've, we hear constantly and something like that. So, um, so, so, so what happened, um, I made one of the biggest mistakes in my life, basically. I, 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 we had a study circle. Here's I go back to the study circle. We had a study circle going. It was making wonderful progress. There was wonderful discussions. Good things were happening. And so I emailed President Hari, who was now trying to negotiate these things, said, why don't you think about having a study circle? We got Michael Cobbler down here. We could probably get him to handle this kind of stuff. Why don't you do that? At that time, Katie Fry and I, who was the person we hired to implement the grant because we had money, were just taking off to a HUD conference in Denver, and I sent that email off. Well. Those were the days where we didn't get, you know, you didn't have cell phones, you get email constantly. So, <laughs> so when I get back, there was an email there for me from the president saying, thank you, Larry, for agreeing to negotiate between <laughs> these groups and solve, and solve this particular problem. Here's the plan. There's already an article in the newspaper that the Community Outreach Partnership is going to take this thing over. So, you know, so we were stuck. What, what are we going to do? And he, said, and he also said, give us a report. Uh, you know, by early early summer, uh, on what happens and you know, solve this problem. So, we were given a list of 12 people to interview. That list of 12 people ended up being over 50 people wow. we talked to. And what happened? The same theme kept on coming up. This group, the, the division between these two groups. One group saying these things just don't happen. This is a couple incidents. You guys make a big deal. The other people said, No, these are things that happen all the time. So we came to the conclusion what we need to do is we need to find out how many incidents are there. I mean, you know, what is really going on? Are these just atypical or what? And so we said, we'll just go find out how many there are. Well, we go to the police department, and what do you find? Nobody knows. No records. And, and the police kept. department is part of, the, at that time anyway, is part of the group that says, these are juvenile pranks. You guys don't know what you're talking about. Uh, they are supposed to report to the state. Most uh, um, law enforcement organizations don't report to the state. Uh, the civil rights people had nothing, the Department of Justice had nothing, went to the FBI, and the FBI guy said, no, we don't have anything, but I'll tell you what you can do. Best place to go is the newspapers. 
We find a lot of our stuff in the newspapers, and then we go investigate them because nobody reports them. But they show up in a little crime report or something like that. We will investigate them. So that's a good idea. So we started to do then was we, we uh, at, the t- at that time, the Northwest Indiana Times had just started its electronic device, electronic searches for their papers. Okay. So we sat down and we did searches. We had a, a list of, uh, of about 50 or 60 uh, items we would put into it there and search for articles and see what would happen. And, and so what we, we began to find that th- these were not <laughs> isolated incidents. In fact, and when, for the report that we wrote, we found 47 incidents in the paper. And again, these are just the ones that, are going, that appear in the yeah. paper. These are not the kind of things that you were talking about before, about when you're walking uh, to Target and getting yelled at and things like this. These are things that are big enough to appear at some particular way. Uh, Let me interrupt for yep, just a minute to say to folks that are listening that this is WVLP and this is Listen <coughs> Up, Welcome Project Radio. You're here with me, Allison Schutte and Willa Walsh, and we have a special guest with us today, Dr. Larry Boss, who is talking to us right now about how his community research um, study got started on bias incidents in Northwest Indiana. So we're kind of at the point now where the community is, and when I say community, should I say Valparaiso? Yeah, like, it was Valparaiso. Is really yeah. In, mm-hmm. divided on how to understand the experiences that have happened in the community around racist and uh, anti-Semitic um, um, graffiti, whether it's um, systemic or whether it's like pranks that we shouldn't give too much attention to. And so now you're talking about how you decided to go and start doing a little bit more research to find out, okay, like what is the what are the incidents that actually can help us decide between these two different poles? Yeah, so, and, and so what happened, I think, you know, we, we, we wrote a report uh, that had not only these incidents listed in them, but we had all kinds of data on the coming diversity in the community, basically projecting about how, you know, what's going to be like in the next 20 years and things like that. We had a lot of people, we had some recommendations, and it was sort of, I would call it a success because Mayor Butterfield, we, he asked us to write something for a resolution. So we found this thing, uh, some little town in Nebraska, I think, had done a thing called Not in Our Town. And it was a resolution by the city and the whole community. These things won't happen in our town. He took that, revised it, and basically sent it out. Had the city council uh, sign it, the Chamber of Commerce sign it, our church signed it, churches, Rotary Club signed it, all kinds of people signed it. So at least at that particular point in time, there was some recognition mm-hmm. that this is real. It's a problem. I remember giving the presentation in the Temple Israel and Mayor Butterfield was sitting in the back of it. I was, sitting, I was, I was watching him go through the, the, the paper that we had, we had written for this and looking and counting. You know, so I think he was, I got the impression he was counting going, yeah, this is real. Okay. You know, and so as a result of that, I think, um, things did at least change temporarily. But then we, once we had that report, we decided, let's keep on doing this and let's, let's see you know, what continues to happen. So that was started the long thing, which is now up to 2018, uh, actually 2019, basically. Um, so but what we do later. then, I'm sorry. 20 years later after those first incidents yeah, that right, really sparked. Right. Uh, and so what we, what we do is we, we just look, we still look in the papers, but we added the Post Tribune to that, and we also look at um, some LaPorte County newspapers as well to, to, to figure this out. 
and we look at an incident, determine what, whether we think it's an incident or not. Uh, we look who the perpetrator, what the mo motivation was, where did it happen, when, when did it happen, um, everything we can find out about it. And we, there's an article there, so we have an article. So what we've done is if you want to look at this, you can go to Northwest Indiana or nwibiasincidents.org. NWI bias incidents. Yeah, if, you, if you just Google bias incidents Northwest Indiana, okay. it'll it'll come up okay. basically, and you can see that we have all these incidents. We now have 421 incidents basically, and uh, probably the neatest thing on there. I don't know. You said you looked at it recently. Um, is are the maps? <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay, so we have every 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 thing is on a map. And it's color-coded to determine what kind of incident it was. Was it a cross-burning? Was it a uh, graffiti uh, thing? Was it a, a swastika painting? Or was it a demonstration? Was it a harassment? We even had murders uh, and things like that, or attempted murder and stuff like that. You can go on that on the, the site and you can you can look at it, and you can click on each little dot. And it'll, it'll, it'll open up, and it'll give you a little summary of that particular incident. Wow. We are running into problems now with some of the stuff because the Northwest Indiana Times has gone to paying online stuff. Oh. So some of the links we have, we're going to have to figure out how to do that kind of stuff like that. So, so if you go there, uh, there's figures and there's all kinds of data. But let me give you a summary, okay? Is that okay? Sure, cut, me yeah. off, cut me off when you, when you <laughs> want to do something else because this is why we brought you on. So oh, okay, um, we, like I said, it's total 421 incidents. Okay, the purpose or the motivation was race in 73 percent of them. Okay, okay? Uh, the next mo biggest category was religion was almost 20 percent. Okay, uh, most of these are against individuals. 41 percent are against per other persons. Okay. Uh, and, and the second is residences, 8.3% against residents. Most of these are harassment of some kind. What that means is that, um, you know, you, so, somebody yells at you and calls you a racial slur, you know, something like that, that kind of stuff like that. 16.2% uh, are graffiti and 15.1% are swastikas. 80 of the incidents occurred in Valparaiso. Okay, now that's sort of unfair to Valparaiso because we know that a lot of places that aren't in the city have Valparaiso addresses. So when it appears in the newspaper, okay. it'll say Valparaiso and give an address, and that may not be in the city. So it exaggerates a little bit the, uh, the thing, but 80, that's 17.2% of all the incidents that we have, and the next biggest one is Hammond with 31. Okay. So Valparaiso has two and a half, um, you know, over two times more than any other city around, okay? And it's kind of interesting that most of that, if you go back in the 1990s, you can look and you can see that in 1990s, early stuff, it was primarily, you know, Gary, you know, uh, East Chicago and Hammond and stuff like that. But as the time goes by, you can just see on a map because huh. you can you can control by year. You can just see it's coming, <laughs> it's you know it's go, it's going east, and so you can see by the by the latter 10, 15 years, it's more likely to be in Portal County and other places like that, and which which makes sense in in that you know that the the uh, migration is occurring in terms of the number of people of color that are coming this way, which creates tensions and different kinds of things like that. 
We also look at the level of severity. Every incident is ranked on a scale from one to five about severity. If it's a murder, it's five. Okay. okay. It may be something like, uh, let's say if I put up a, a swastika on a tree somewhere, like out in our, there was a swastika on a tree in, in, the, in the Valpo Tech yard there for a while. You know, that, that's not really that, it's bad, but it's not severe like trying to kill somebody because they're black, okay? So that might get a warrant. So we track severity too, and actually the severity levels are decreasing. Okay. Okay. While the numbers are increasing, hmm. the severity of them is decreasing, which is kind of an interesting phenomenon in a sense like in Valpo there's more, but most of the things that happen in Valpo are very low on the severity level. I would uh, think that wouldn't necessarily be healthier <laughs> for oh, a community, I'm not, though, right? I'm not, I, I think I thought it was interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's not, not healthy yeah. to have more of these kinds of things. I think, I think what happens, too, I think, as Greg Jones used to always say, people become more sophisticated in, in the way they apply race kinds of issues. And uh, uh, as time goes on, um, people use different things. We never saw nooses before, but every once in a while you hear, you see now nooses. That wasn't even in our categories to start okay. out with, but that, that emerges in a couple of instances where you have things like that. Um, but that also, let me stop there. That's about the questions, whatever questions you might have. Yeah, I wonder like how you, I mean, other than maybe like a sophistication of the residents, like how you account for the lowering of severity, but the increase of incidence. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, how do you account for that? I, I, I think what I'd suggest is more sophisticated. I, I, you know, I think that we don't see people getting up in Ku Klux Klan outfits anymore and running around with stuff mm. like that. You know, that they're more, you know, sensitive to that kind of stuff. But they're what they will. As my daughter will tell you, uh, you know, they, they're not, they still ride by in a big old pickup truck and, and, and yell names at you, basically. As she tells a story that one time she was walking her dog downtown and somebody yelled, F you, chink. You know, and not, at least they could get my race correct. <laughs> and she turned around and there was a, an Asian woman walking behind. But those are the kind of things uh, that, that happen, yeah. you know, and, uh, uh, but I think we're less, you know, we're more subtle about that particular kind of thing. That makes sense. I, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, no, my definitely. My first answer was I don't know, but I think that we could talk about that. I think in our neighborhood, as my daughter pointed out, there was three places I, I didn't even notice that had Confederate flags. Mm. Still, I guess it's none left. The guy who did, had the flag died, and somebody took it down. So, But, I mean, you know, we don't see a lot of that. Okay, we see more subtle kinds of, mm. of biased stuff. Would you shunning actually, people? And, would you yeah. actually count the Confederate flag as a bias incident? Yes, I would. Okay. Now, we had we had long discussions about that. Yeah. Uh, I think that if you, um, if it if it if it if it's an expression of hostilities towards someone because of the race, and I think one could argue that would fall into that particular category. A lot of a lot of our students over the years say, well, why would it, you know, there was one case we had where there's a swastika painted over on a, on a county road uh, over a train overhead in the middle of nothing. Nobody, no residences around for, you know, a quarter of a mile. How can that be a bias incident? Mm. Well, the, the point is that's a symbol that has meaning yes. <laughs> you know, to those people that can buy. We had a situation one time, I remember when I presented this data one time, and he, this person who's still a big person in the community came up to me afterwards and said, uh, 
you know, I don't, what's the big deal? You know, if somebody burned a cross on my lawn, I'd just clean it up, rake it up, and put it in the garbage. <laughs> and I thought, I just, you know, Can I this, this make is, an assumption this was a white person? Yes, yes. Because <laughs> yeah. I feel like it can be really hard if you're not in the, you know, subordinated category for whichever demographic we're sort of focused on to actually understand that the cross burning is not like one sort of activity or exercise. Like you said, it has yeah. all of this meaning that comes with it because right. of its symbolism, but its history and also yeah. like whether that message is being um, uh, like emphasized to you in other ways by the culture yeah. at hand. Yeah. But, the, but that also shows you the extent of the attitude. Yeah. You know, but you're still dealing with those people who... This was quite some time ago. I'm hoping that that person had thought about it. I, I just said, I said, if that happened to me, I'd, I'd probably, you know, have the, the storage unit packed already and ready to go and get yeah. out of town, basically, mm -hmm. because I think that uh, um, it's scary to, to me, basically. So. Yeah. Um, I wonder if, you know, you talked about the two groups in the 90s and early 2000s, sort of taking sides with whether the incidents were meaningful, representative, systemic, and those who thought they were kind of pranks and shouldn't be given too much attention. It seemed like you were saying once the mayor got to that point where your report was in people's hands and there was documented evidence of the number of incidents, that that helped the community kind of realize, okay, something's going on here, but that was 20 years ago. Like, is this other, this other position, this voice of like, stop paying so much attention to something that's just childishness. Like, has that resurfaced or do you sense that there's more willingness to be like, yes, this is a problem, even if we don't kind of know how to address it very well? I, I think, you know, there was a momentary um, reckoning on the part of some people that something was wrong. I don't think that that, I don't think it, it's, it's as bad as it had been before, but I don't think there's been much change after that. I think if you, you know, I, I, the other study that we did was our drug stuff. We did the, we did the epidemiological report for the county, and, which was always bad news uh, in a sense that because our students at that time we were doing it were consuming drugs and alcohol at a much higher rate than other places across the state. So I, I gave, was giving a presentation one time, and I, I, somebody saw that it was me giving the presentation, and they said, oh, my God, it's bad news, boss. Uh, you know? he said, <laughs> oh, no. You know, so, so we got the reputation of getting bad news. Again. Yeah. Like, here's the racial bias, and here's another drug thing like that, too. But I think there still is this, 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 you hear people talk about the Valpo brand, and you don't want to mess with that brand. Yeah. And mm -hmm. talking about the racial incidents is essentially messing with the Valpo brand. And that was a theme that came up an awful lot among people that we interviewed. You guys are just ruining for everybody here. We got good schools, we got everything that's good here, and then you guys go out and talk about it. I said, you know, we're not talking, I'm just feeding back to you what's in the newspaper. You know, mm -hmm. uh, that's all. That's all we're doing. It wasn't like we were discovering something, going out and finding something. Which is that? This has been in the paper. You know, and you just didn't think about it as a in, a in a lump sum together when you look at it in that particular way. So. 
Well, it kind of reminds me along the lines of gender of hearing people say, well, boys will be boys, which I feel like we heard a version of as Trump was running in 2016 and his behavior towards women surfaced. And there was a lot of like willingness to excuse the behavior because we just sort of expect men to be <laughs> sexual predators. I don't know. That seems crazy. <laughs> like when locker room talk, it. whatever they said. Yeah. Um, but I do feel like there's this like a community or a society gets used to a certain level of toxicity. And then mm. and then it's like just <clears throat> we know how to operate in that toxicity. So we just are happy with the status quo. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think there's a term for that called malignant normality, which is malignant what, uh, normality. Yeah. Okay, I don't know that phrase. Well, that's that was the term that was used by I think the guy's name is Lipton, who wrote on the, uh, you know, how could these doctors in in, in Germany, who were who were uh, committed to do this, how could they do this kind of stuff? And he said, well, it just sort of evolved, you know, the, the normality became malignant. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and they begin more of accepting it. I mean, I see that in the whole Trump era. I don't want to yeah. get into pol- political things, but you can see the things that Trump did. You know, if if um, you know George Bush would have done that, he would have been he would have been forced to resign almost immediately. But Trump just got away with all it, and it came, it came like you said, the toxicity toxicity becomes accepted, becomes yeah. part of the norm. And I think that's what happens an awful lot of times too. Uh, this is WVLPLP at 103.1 FM in Valparaiso, and you're here today with me, Allison Schutte, and Willa Walsh. Today on Listen Up, we have a special guest, Dr. Larry Boss, who has been helping us understand um, the Community Research Center's uh, study of Northwest Indiana, uh, bias incidents in Northwest Indiana. Um, and I think is now a good time. Oh, I think this is a great transition. Play. This idea of like Valpo being the safe haven for people or storytelling. Can I make up. one point before you do that? Right. That is that we're having real trouble now because if you if you have any understanding, Northwest Indiana Times basically has has cut its staff to almost virtually nothing. Mm-hmm. There's one reporter in Porter County, uh, and, I, and the editor even said about five years ago, we we have no time to report that kind of stuff anymore. And she. So what's happening is we are, are in the Post Tribune is nothing more than a Chicago Tribune, you know, South Side kind of newspaper, and yeah. so we don't really get the data. So we're we're looking very seriously at we, that. There's been a, a decline in it, but I think the decline is much more to the fact that the newspapers don't report this kind of stuff. Yeah, so, that's really interesting. There's so many um, unexpected ramifications of local media no longer having the resources to really report um, that's at why this, this level. That's why this station is so important. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Did you want to say anything about the story before oh, I Oh, yeah, it, so or? this one is, this is a storyteller that's going to talk about their experience um, as a Valparaiso University student, and it's titled, Totally Safe Unless You're Brown. Since I am from the area, Valpo has, like, this reputation of being a safe place. Like, you're not going to get robbed, you're not going to get beaten, you're not going to get kidnapped. It's, you know, this little, like, utopia for safety, at least. The first blatantly racist thing that I've ex- I experienced didn't actually happen to me, but I witnessed it. My freshman year, my boyfriend, who is black, came to visit, and he, my friend, who was white, and then I went walking to Target. You know, we were talking and things, and somebody yelled something out of the window by the roundabout, and... I didn't want to assume that they 
yelled a racial slur even though that's what it sounded like you know so we kind of like what did they say and nobody really wanted to admit so we just kept walking and then that same car circled back and then they said the racial slur against black people very clearly and that scared me just because they you know they came back and made a point to do it I feared for him just because you really don't know what people are capable of we got to around where Starbucks is before you get to Target and we were in the crosswalk we were crossing it and this guy comes barreling through my friend and my boyfriend were like you know what the heck you know they're like yelling and stuff like because this dude literally almost hit us the guy stops he backs his car up gets out of his car and he comes out he addresses only my boyfriend and he's like what did you say you little effer it was it was very scary he was a middle a middle-aged dude and you know he was about to pick a fight with this kid i was so scared for his life like i did not know what that dude was capable of i swear it was only because he was black because my white friend said something as well but my boyfriend got all of the heat and luckily it it stopped and the guy left but you know ever since then when he would come to visit me we would never leave campus because i didn't want something to happen to him you know it made me fear for the other students that go here you know because he he doesn't go here but there are lots of black students that's their daily reality if they decide to go walking somewhere there's that risk it's like you know, oh, you're you're totally safe in Valpo unless you're brown. Hello, this is WVLP, and you're listening to Welcome Project Radio. Listen up with Allison Schutte, that's me, and Willow Walsh. And we have a special guest today, Dr. Larry Bass, a political scientist who has been studying um, bias incidents in Northwest Indiana. And we just played a story from the Welcome Project, which was a Valparaiso University student talking about experiences walking to Target from campus. Do you have questions you want to start with today? Yeah, so, I mean, we were talking a little bit before about this idea that, like, Valpo isn't a bad place. You know, bad things don't happen here. You know, what are you talking about these bias incidents? That's not who we are as Valpo. But I think, like, I grew up here, too, and there's this, there is that sentiment of, like, you know, Hammond has a reputation for Valpo residents. It's like, well, you don't go to Hammond. You don't go to Gary, you know, Portage, you know. But Valpo, you're fine. You can walk around. At night, everything's fine. You're going to be fine. But I think, like, this doesn't surprise me, this <laughs> this scenario that's happened, like, being yelled at from somebody. I don't know. It's like, I think, I think it's a lot more common than we like to think. I don't know. I mean, I've been yelled at by pickup trucks driving. <laughs> I know that it definitely happens, but it's like, what what do we do when we when we want to believe that our community is really welcoming, but at the same time these these sort of incidents are happening? Like, what do we? I don't know. Does that change our understanding of Valpo? I don't. I don't quite know what to do with that. Did you notice anything, Larry, that popped out to you from the story? Just because you've been kind of documenting these sorts of incidents? Well, the first thing I would say is those are the kind of incidents that don't show up in our study. Okay. Okay, because they have not made the newspaper. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, sort of uh, what that one group was saying on the side. This is the tip of the iceberg. You know, these these things happen every day. You're not recording them and that kind of stuff like that, too. Um, 
but yeah, we have, looking at, just looking at the list of things we have here, we have a lot of those in our study. And my expectation is that this occurs on a pretty regular basis uh, to people. Uh, I forget, what, what, the, what was the question that I was thinking about? I was thinking, like, how do we, like, what do we make of this? And I'm thinking about also the people who are like, well, these are isolated incidents. These are juvenile pranks. But, like, I, I don't know. I was grown up in the sense that, like, Valpo is this safe haven. But there are these incidents that are happening. And, like, I wonder if that, like, should we change the way we think about Valpo in light of these incidents? Well, I think the first thing you could do is you could, you could say, once you go to northwest Indiana bias, Incidents, nwibiasincidents.org, and, and look, read the 421 incidents there, and you, you have access, in most cases, to the whole article that talked about these kinds of things. And I think when you come away from that, you go, oh, wait a second, I didn't know these things happened. There's, there's, you know, at least some people would, would think that way. Other people are never going to buy into that kind of stuff like that, because your whole... Um, identity is tied up in this particular community as being a nice, clean... I mean, you know, I, I just, it's kind of interesting because there was a, at a BZA meeting uh, about a month ago, the city attorney uh, talked about Belpo as a, a welcoming community, and he said he didn't care. He said he, he said there was people on the local radio station that were perpetuating a false narrative that the city of Valparaiso was not welcoming. And actually was referring to Paul Schreiner and I, basically. Yeah. But, uh, but, you know, that's the kind of attitude you get into. Here you have a person, a position in this city, a pretty, pretty powerful position, actually, given the way the city operates, um, uh, saying, you know, we're a welcoming community, and people who are saying other things are a false narrative. I mean, so, I mean... Yeah, the one thing that really grinds my gears is like a couple years ago I was at a city council meeting and there was like an acknowledgement that these sorts of things happen, like like slurs get yelled out of like pickup trucks and that sorts of thing. But the most aggravating thing is that one of the city council members was like, yeah, but they're not from Valpo. These are the people from Couts and Wanata who come into Valpo and shop and they do these things to Valpo residents and then they leave. But it's it's not Valpo residents. So it's like, it feels like, okay, like we can document the incidents and we can even acknowledge that they're happening, but it's so weird that we can't even still take that step to be like, yes, it's people that live here that do this. And also, even if it's not people that live here that do this, it's still happening. So I don't know. Yeah, and how do you... Me. Like, what would it mean to take responsibility because it's happening in your community, mm -hmm. regardless of who's perpetuating it? I mean, I think, Larry, you said in the first half of the show that Valpo, the city, is trying to protect its brand. Like, so if you're not saying that the city is welcoming, you're not saying the city is safe, are you saying the opposite? Are you saying Valparaiso is a dangerous, unwelcoming place? <laughs> And like, what city wants to like be branded that way? Yeah. But like, I wonder if there's something else besides those polls where you could still be honest about the sorts of incidents that are happening and that yeah. need a, a community response, a, a city level response, without it meaning that the city is unsafe or unwelcoming. But maybe that's still occupying the position of being a white person who at least is not experiencing this kind of racial harassment. 
I mean, the this this story stands out to me in particular because it doesn't stop with the drive-by. Mm-hmm. You know, I've I've seen drive-bys. I've been a, a like a victim of drive-bys because of gender. Um, but like I've actually never had somebody stop and come back around. And I feel like for this storyteller, that's when she gets really scared because when they circle back this, the racial slur is like, I can no longer ignore that that is what was said. Mm -hmm. Like there's this desire on the part of her and her friends to be like, this isn't happening, this isn't happening, which that feels like a very normal response and maybe is what even is motivating some of our city decision makers. Like it's not something you want to have to confront, but. Yeah, I, I think there, there is a middle ground. I mean, I mean, a, a politician could say, you know what, we're like everybody else in the country. We have issues, you know, and we understand that and we're gonna do something about it. I think that's what David Butterfield was saying, you know, back in 2001 when he got this resolution passed by the city council. This is, these things are not going to happen in our town anymore, okay? And uh, we're, still mixed, we're still a good community, and we're going to be better because we're going to do these kinds of things. That's what we've, Paul and I, Shriner and I have always, we have that program called ABC, Agenda for a Better Community. And we always start with saying, Belper is a good place to live and raise kids and things like that but there are things that could be better. And let's focus on those particular things. I, I've always argued to the, to the city is that, you know, you could be a model you know, of how to do things. We, we, you know, 20 years ago, we made a list of recommendations that it, um, uh, for them to, to think about. And it didn't come from us, it came from other people as well. And that if we would have done that at that particular point in time, I think we'd be way ahead of the game. And yeah. we'd be way ahead of other cities. I mean, they're, you know, there's all this concern about, you know, Crown Point and Cherville. You know, those places are, are, are going to get these liquor license, and they're going to also have all these restaurants, and people aren't going to go there, and we're not going to be the go-to place in this particular area. But you could still make yourself a model of, of what, it, what it's like. We could, have, we could have affordable housing. We could have uh, reasonable things. I think uh, if you've seen what George Terrell and the Allies Against Racism have done, I mean, they're... And they, they now are setting up another meeting with the school superintendent. Um, and so, I mean, that's progress. I mean, you know, I think that the, to admit that you have a problem. I mean, I know a lot of my friends who work in social services who've always said the worst thing, the hardest thing to do in the city is to get the school system to admit they have problems. <laughs> okay, because we don't have problems. And leave us alone, we don't have problems. But this is a, you know, I think it's a big step. Wrecking, you know, the state basically that we, you know, yeah, that we got issues. But again, we're like everybody else. Everybody else has issues too. Mm-hmm. So let's let's but let's be the one that's going to solve the problem and take a, a lead on that kind of stuff. That, so I'm just trying to suggest that there is a middle yeah, ground yeah. there, recognize it, and say we're going to do something about it. Yeah. You know, I think well, the problem now is that the, the the economy is geared here towards bringing in, as the mayor said in his campaign, um, middle class families, who will basically you know, buy these houses and these buildings and these things that we're going to have here. And, and if they don't, you know, and we'll make sure they can get to Chicago every day because we'll have five buses running if we ever get them running again, basically. That, you know, we're going to make it a good place for that place. Not recognizing the fact that its, its own housing report just came out last week said they are short 803 uh, units for very low-income people in this community. 830 units. I mean, and 
we, we need to do something about those things. I'm sorry, I'm getting off the subject, but I mean, they're all <laughs> yeah, tied. They they're, are they're, all They're all tied together about the kind mm-hmm. of a better community we are in. And I mean, we have the resources here and the talented people in government. To, to, if we could put that stuff into, uh, put as much energy into creating a downtown and that much energy into doing housing and race issues, we would we would really be some a place special, I think. Yeah. This is WVLP. You're listening to Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio with me, Allison Schutte, and Willa Walsh. And today we have with us Dr. Larry Boss. We've been talking about uh, bias incidents in Northwest Indiana, and we listened to a story from the Welcome Project, which is a student who had experienced um, verbal and physical harassment around race as she and her friends walked to Target from campus. Um, I'm curious, the speaker the storyteller says that she and her boyfriend whenever he visited just decided that they wouldn't leave campus and i wonder like how do we feel about that we're i'm i'm hopefully i'm not making assumptions but we're three white people sitting here (laughs) in this room like how do we feel about the fact that they made that decision was that the right decision was that the wrong decision or can we talk about the costs of that decision, maybe even to the city? I mean, I think I mean, I think for them it's the right decision, right? Because you're putting yourself at less of a risk or you're probably not going to run into that same incident that you are on campus. So, I mean, I think on an individual basis, it's the right call, but I think the fact that it has to happen is just really sad and that it's just like there's no confidence you know, in the community or Larry, like you were talking about, like systems that we have, politicians to stand up for us, you know, referendums to come out of it that that help you feel supported enough to say, okay, this happened, but I feel supported by my community so I can still go out and I can still do these things. So I think it's a testament to to the general I don't know, I guess, vibe of Valpo <laughs> that like, you know, once something like that happens, it's just like, okay, I'm gonna stay on campus now. Like this feels unsafe and there, there's no real like support system for them. Yeah. I guess it also makes me very aware that when we say Valpo is a safe community, Valpo is a welcoming community, like that might only apply to certain kinds of people. In mm-hmm. this case, white people. I remember it was, I think it was an HRC meeting after the um, incident where there was a, a Valpo student who had just graduated who was pulled over in Hilltop for Jackson, like yeah. a drug offense. And he resisted <clears throat> arrest because he was scared. And anyway, the city officials were talking with him and, and some community members and found a way to kind of resolve what was happening, but part of that uh, ended up with the Human Relations Council in, in Valparaiso wanting to make a statement. And that brought out the fraternal, that meeting brought out community members and the Fraternal Order of Police for the region. It was not just Valpo City cops that were there. It was very heated um, tension, like emotions were running high and there were, I was, I was, it was too full for me to be in the, the city council chamber where the meeting was happening. I was in the hallway, so I was trying to hear and kind of see yeah. what was going on. So and was I. There were two, yeah. there were two older white men. Uh, one of them was in uniform, 
even though he was retired. And they were talking, so I just turned and asked them if they could be quiet so I could hear. And they were not having any of that. Um, and then a comment had been made by someone on the floor that as a black person, they felt safer in Gary than they did in Valpo. And that set off this like commentary between the two older white men about how ridiculous that statement was. And like this person shouldn't even be listened to because that's just obviously so incorrect. And that there wasn't any awareness around like, Actually, it might be pretty obvious that Valparaiso would be an unsafe place for black residents. Um, so I, I don't know like why it can be so hard to want to see that race has that kind of implication in our lives. That's going way beyond our storytelling. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't think it is. I mean, I don't know. Your show, I don't know. How, I can't tell you. Well, it is, but I, I was, I was, I was came a little bit late, and I was in the back. I think I must have been on the other side of that, and had, I was, I, I, had, I was actually afraid. I was scared. Yeah. Not, you know, not really scared, but I was anxious. Let's put it that yeah. way. About. And then when that one guy, the former retired cop, walked up there and pulled out the gun. I mean, I, I think if he had been, you know, he was showing, well, you know, you you got to protect yourself because anybody can pull out a gun. He pulls out a gun. I as. Um, Several of us said, if he was black, he'd be dead. Yeah. You know, pulling out a gun like that, because there was a couple, there's some angry people there. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I just happened to clean off my desk so far behind I am, and I came across the letter that the cops wrote about that. Okay. And it, it, it was scary. Yeah. Because it, it, it basically said, you know, we know what we're doing, and we don't want you people, in particular Mayor Costas, to tell us what to do. And I thought, wait a second, these people work for the, government, they work for us, they do what we tell them we want them to do, you know, it was kind of scary, that was really, really afraid, you know, and, you know, this is way off the subject, but you already started that, <laughs> it's my fault. Uh, we had, we had a, a, a new member in our church, and his father, father and father, father and I don't know who it was, a family, uh, and after the first or second sermon, our, pa our pastor just mentioned Black Lives Matter, and they quit the church. Huh. And as a result of that, I mean, that was you know, you just don't talk like that. And there was a police officer and a fireman in the mm -hmm. city, so that's the kind of scary attitude when you're talking about, you know, what do you do? Is it better off to stay safe on campus? I I, I do think though that the the last two share, uh, police chiefs we've had have been pretty good. The guy who was doing stuff when we were doing this back in 1990 with Dave Butterfield. Uh, was not good. Okay. Okay. He had no sense of, of of what was going on, and so. But I think the last uh, uh, Brickner and uh, the guy I can't think of was Chief Fallon. Yeah, uh, are, are are sensitive to that kind of stuff, and I think. Well, I even remember Brickner at that particular HRC meeting, really trying <laughs> to like hold a middle ground and have less. Um, yeah. sort of emotion around what he saw as like proper police work, but he was definitely <laughs> drowned out that day. Yeah, I think you know, I think Costas navigated a pretty pretty good place. I mean, he you know he came out to be the in the eyes of the police that joint drug task force kind of stuff. People um, came out to be you know a good sound perspective on the matter. So anyway. But going back to the question about Freight, you know, I think you know, that's 
probably not unusual. People of color had come to know their place. I mean, I'm not saying that, you know. It's appropriate, but. You know, but that they, you know, they know what's safe, what's not safe. I remember my daughter saying that when she went to DePaul in Chicago, and then she went to the University of Chicago, and she said, well, I, I felt safer in, at DePaul than I did in Valpo, but I feel much safer now than I live in, when I live in, you know, south side of Chicago, basically, like being biracial. She had that thing, so there was a, so she had her, she was sensitive, you know, to where she could be safer, given the kind of community that she lived in. I think that's what happens here as well. So. And I guess I wonder if, um, I mean, we would have to really be theoretical here, but like, what would the city of Valparaiso think about finding out that students of color are staying on campus? Would they be happy with that? I mean, would they be okay with that? Or would they feel like those are dollars that are not entering our community? Um, But I I don't know, like, is that for some, for, for a, a city government body to say we're a welcoming place and and all of this other stuff is false narratives like would they just discount the student's story and then not try to you know encourage that sort of shopping and economy or maybe they just feel like students don't have enough money so it's not a big concern or worry for them to have to address we did a study years ago when the big boxes were coming in out there, uh, Target and all that stuff like that, and they wanted, the city planner wanted to know what's going to be the impact. And one of the things we did, we looked at, and, and, and they said, um, well, the students don't shop downtown anyway. <laughs> that, that, you know, that's 20 years ago. I don't know how good that is, but students, didn't, of course, if you get to be 21, use the bars. Okay, that would be one thing. But in, in terms of everything else, they said, well, this target is not going to bother us that much because those people don't shop down here anyway. I don't know what's going to happen. You know, again, I don't know what's happening now, but yeah. that would be something. I don't know. It kind of reminds me of the, the one story that we have about um, like an Afro-Hispanic student who had um, been pulled over over 20 times by police, and we've played that story in front of white audiences, and Typically, the response we get is like, well, he's exaggerating. That's hurting his point. He's just hyperbolizing. It couldn't be that many times. And so I think that would, I don't know, I would expect that to be the same sort of attitude. It's like, well, it's one person who doesn't want to go out and target. You know, it's mm. completely safe for me. So I don't see, again, like the, the comment about like it's safer in Gary than it is in Valpo. It's like, I don't think that there's an acknowledgement past your own experience that you yeah. can understand that it would be hard. It's like, it's safe. And if you want, you know, my understanding would be like, if you don't want to go out, you're dumb because it's totally safe because I'm totally safe. And I don't think there's a connection between like, just because I feel super safe doesn't mean that other people feel super safe. So I don't know if there's like, I don't know, even like an like an impact, because I think that that might take local businesses to say, <clears throat> hey, we need to do something because kids aren't coming out anymore. But I don't know. I think it also goes back to this idea of like needing a sort of public infrastructure. And like, I'm not trying to spill the tea here, but I just think that Valpo has had a lot of opportunities in the local city government to take a stand in that moment. I wasn't at that meeting, but oh my gosh, if I was the mayor, I feel like I would have done something when a cop pulled a gun out in the room. Like that would 
have been horrifying. <laughs> and it's just like, I also think about like the the garage off Lincoln Way by 7-Eleven that had Black Lives Matter written on it. And I was so overjoyed to see that when I saw it for the first time, because I'm like, wow, I would never expect to see this in Valpo. And I was so proud to see it. And I felt so disgusted that our local government, particularly our mayor, made it his vendetta to get it painted over. And what kind of symbol does that send to people in Valpo? Because if I'm thinking I'm the student who's walking to Target and I get accosted, well, I might be more inclined to think if it's an isolated incident, but if I walk a couple blocks down and the Black Lives Matter painting just got ordered by the local government to be covered up, wow, that yeah. sends a very specific sign to me and how I feel welcome in this city because it says, go home. Very. Yes, and bring, as long as you brought that up, if you walk in front of Trinity Lutheran Church, you'll see a sign that says, Black Lives Matter to God and to us. Okay, so that, that was sort of put up and, and sort of in support of those p- persons. Uh, awesome. Thing. So there are some people who do that kind of stuff. So. Yeah. Yeah, well, so if it ahead. comes down one other one place, how could we proliferate the message maybe in other well, spots? Well, that's, that's what we're going to try to do. We're trying to encourage other churches basically to do the same thing and say, you know, especially when you frame to God and us, to God and to us. Yeah. I mean, that's a little bit different, you know. Kind of cover the bed a little I mean, bit. it is really interesting that this is the same city government that at the BZA said, we are a welcoming community. So if we grant them as much goodwill as possible, somehow they don't see these two things as opposed to each other, like whitewashing the Black Lives Matter sign and saying we're welcoming. And I, I don't know how to make sense of that, ex- mm-hmm. except maybe like going back to the Confederate flags, like... I know there are people who will still say that that is a sign of Southern culture as it not supposed, it's not yeah. meant to be racist. Um, and so you have to have a really long conversation to back get back to like, well, how does a symbol get in, <clears throat> its meaning invested in it? And do you get to pick and choose what the symbol means depending on how you feel about it or who you are. So I I feel like Black Lives Matter, that statement, so you said at your church, it was a police officer and a firefighter who left when the pastor mentioned it in a sermon. Like that Black Lives Matter has become opposed to Blue Lives Matter, right? right? And like, it's like you can't even hear any, some people can no longer hear Black Lives Matter as Black Lives Matter. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Why wouldn't we want black lives to matter? It now has to mean something else. Anti-police, anti-Republican, anti-white people. Like, it, it's very frustrating. We're all sitting here with masks on, too, which is a political statement yeah. in this world today. So. <laughs> oh, boy, we're ending on a really frustrating note today. Willow, do you have any final thoughts as I take us out? Oh, no. Let's go for it. I think I think we covered a lot of ground. Eh? <laughs> well, thank you for having me. I, yeah. It was enjoyable. Thank you so much, Larry. Yeah, thanks, Larry. Thanks for joining us. And that's it for today. Thanks for listening. Thanks again to our sponsors, Asana Yoga Center at asanacenter.com and Roots Market Cafe at rootsmarketcafe.com. We here at Welcome Project Radio love to support our local businesses. 
And if you'd like to start a conversation with us or ask us any questions, you can feel free to email us at welcomeprojectradio at gmail.com. That's again, welcomeprojectradio, all one word, at gmail.com. And if you'd like to hear more stories like the ones you heard today, you can find them on our website at welcomeproject.valpo.edu.